This is the beginning of part two in the two-part focus on reggae. Thanks for coming back. I'm sure you're going to love this. Well, there's no way to faithfully talk about reggae without diving into Bob Marley's life and body of work. After all, it's Bob's name and legend that reaches furthest around the world. He was the truly first international superstar from the third world. In his lifetime, Marley sold more than 20 million albums. Robert Nesta Marley was born on February 6, 1945, in the tiny St. Anne Parish village of Nine Miles, a town with no running water or electricity. There's a deep cultural connection to Africa in this village, especially in the art of storytelling. We've talked about African griots and their time-tested way of sharing the past, in other episodes. This ancient tradition, which saturated Nine Mile, was the rich, fertile soil which grew the boy and then where the man later drew his songs. Marley was the son of an 18-year-old black mother named Sedella. Later in life, Bob named one of his own daughters after her. His father was mostly absent a white man, 43 years Sedella's senior, named Norval. By all accounts, Norval was seriously unstable, and he died at the age of 70, when Bob was only nine. In the late 1950s, the Marleys moved from Nine Miles to Kingston. They made their home in one of its poorest neighborhoods called Trenchtown. It got its name because it was built over an actual sewage trench. Like Nine Miles, Trenchtown was also a culturally rich community. It was here where Bob's musical talents bloomed. A a lifelong source of inspiration, Bob immortalized Trenchtown in songs like No Woman, No Cry and Trenchtown Rock. Bob's earliest musical influences were local Jamaican performers and the American sounds he heard streaming out of tinny transistor radios and local jukeboxes. Ray Charles, Elvis Presley, Fats Domino and the Drifters were among his favorite American artists. He came of age at just the right time, growing up alongside the Rastafarian movement the rise of the Jamaican record labels, and the spread of the DJs and their sound systems which brought the music to everyone. As a boy, Bob became friends with Bunny. His real name was Neville O'Reilly Livingston. Bunny convinced Bob to learn guitar. Bob and Bunny spent a lot of time working on their music, and Bob improved his singing voice during those early years. Here's Bunny Whaler remembering his early days with Bob. 
you see, Trenchtown is a place that is filled with a lot of talented people. Youth, they was there singing like crazy. I mean, almost every other youth is a singer in Trenchtown, those, in those times. And the persistency of Robert in getting involved in the music and trying to pull me in also, he realizes that a group would be maybe the appropriate thing to make us all become in one kind of thing other than being individual solo artists. Well, we used to listen to groups like um, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, um, the Drifters, the Platters. Five membership groups were the Platters and so we were more in tune, you know, um, yeah, the, in, in, to those groups. So that, as the group was a five membership group, the early wheelers started with five members. Can you enumerate just for me who were the members of the wheelers at that time? Um, Robert, myself, Peter, Juno Brathway, and Beverly Kelso. That's the wheelers. Simmer down! <laughs> when we went to Coxon, um, after Seiko introduced us, did you sing? Do you remember auditioning? Yes, we went. We auditioned. Um, we did. Um, we did four songs in the audition. We did. I don't need your love. Um, Straight and narrow way. Uh, I um. There was another track. So remember that other track. But Zero Down was a track that I used to really emphasize on in our rehearsals. But Robert never too like the track because it was a nursery rhyme, you know. Old time people used to say it was sweet nanny goat. I go, I feel like, you know, we should have started with a more creative type of song where no one never really hear yet. So I never really choose about Simmerdown. So after we sang three first song, I said to him, let's do Simmerdown. And him frowned. So I said, let's do Simmerdown. And Coxie hear me and him a converse and say, Simmerdown, let me hear Simmerdown. And Ram Peter goes up, blam with the guitar. And he's simmer down. As he just said, don't sing another line come tomorrow morning. That was Monday morning. We went to Sunday evening. And Simmer Down was recording. The first track recorded on Monday was Simmer Down. And it was played on the sound system the same night. It skipped along. Played 26 hours, 27 times. Because we heard it. From a distance, from Duncan's playing in the air, so we hear it, and it's like we can't believe it. Peter ran out of his bathroom with his soap on, naked, towel wrapped around him, running to try to come to us. We running to come to him. We all buck up, you know, come together um, at one spot. Everybody hearing it, crazy. In 1962. A local record producer named Leslie Kong heard Marley singing and asked him to record a few singles, starting with a track called Judge Not. The Wailing Wailers followed Judge Not with the band's first single, Simmer Down. Yeah. 
It went to the top of the Jamaican charts in January 1964. Surfing this wave, the Wailing Wailers added three more members, Junior Brathwaite, Beverly Kelso, and Cherry Smith. They were locally popular, but they struggled to make a living, and by 1966, Brathwaite, Kelso, and Smith quit the band. With things seeming to be at a dead end, Bob and his new bride, Rita, headed out for America. Can you imagine Bob Marley working as a lab assistant for DuPont and living in Wilmington, Delaware? Me neither. Big surprise, he thought the work was boring. And another big surprise, the rampant racism of 1960s America was, for him, totally unbearable. After eight pretty shitty months, Bob and Rita were back in Jamaica. Apparently, life as a struggling musician was still way better than working for the man. Marley reconnected with Livingston and Macintosh to relaunch the Wailers, dropping the wailing part this time. This was also when he started exploring his spiritual nature, politics, the Rastafarian movement, Marcus Garvey, the Old Testament, and African heritage and culture. Everything that's come to be part of the reggae mystique. brought two new members into the Wailers, bassist Aston Family Man Barrett and his brother, drummer Carlton Carley Barrett. This set the stage for the Wailers' huge break. In 1972, when they signed with Chris Blackwell at Island Records. At the time, Island's top reggae star, Jimmy Cliff, had just left the label. Blackwell saw Bob as the perfect artist to fill that void and to attract a rock audience that Blackwell thought was primed for reggae. Blackwell once said, I was dealing with rock, which was really rebel music, and I felt that what would really be the way to break Jamaican music into the U.S. market was to have someone who could be that image. When Bob walked in, he really was that guy. The Wailers' first album was a critically acclaimed Catch a Fire. Immediately after its release, they hit the road to support the album, opening for a total unknown named Bruce Springsteen, and after that, for Sly and the Family Stone, who were at their peak, and where they wanted to stay. The Wailers sizzled, blowing away American audiences, and an envious Sly Stone felt like his band was being upstaged. After just four shows, Bob and company were removed from the tour. So that sucks. You can learn lots more about Sly and the Family Stone in this past June's episode on Funk. Check it out. Catch a Fire was an incredible first release for any band. 
Marley's strong melodies, supported by a powerful rhythm section and carrying memorable political lyrics, helped launch reggae as an international genre. A few of the album's biggest tracks included this song, 400 Years, Concrete Jungle, Stop That Train, and Baby We've Got a Date, We're Also On It. And for a first release, it did pretty well. Catch a Fire hit number 11 on the UK album chart and number 51 on Billboard's R&B chart. This might surprise you. It did me. This album that introduced Jamaican music to the Western world, written and recorded by a Jamaican band, wasn't available in Jamaica since distribution was through Ireland, and Ireland had no distribution rights in Jamaica. Also in 72, the Whalers followed up with their second album, Burnin'. I Shot the Sheriff came from it, and of course Eric Clapton's cover went number one in the U.S. in 74. After Burn, both Macintosh and Livingston went solo as Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler. In both cases, this was pretty much due to personal conflicts with Blackwell. Livingston didn't like Blackwell's suggestion that the band start playing underground freak clubs. Bunny saw the band as making music for children now. Not for gays, his perspective, not mine guys, or people who were strung out on synthetic drugs. About the move, he said, I felt good because I wasn't going to wallow in no shit. Tosh, who often referred to Blackwell as Whitewell, or White Worst, left too. Fed up, as he put it with, quote, Blackwell's relentless fuckery. Tosh, had a poetic way with language, making use of patois to inject his opinions everywhere possible. In the book of Tash, you've got words like sufferation, mashing suffer and nation to describe the suffering of black people, shitstem for system, as in social system, Queen Elizabeth for Queen Elizabeth, agonization for organization and politics for politics, the dishonest and manipulative way that politicians operate. For a deeper explanation on this word, see Greg Abbott, Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump. The follow-up to Burnin was Natty Dread. continued to shine a light on the political tensions in America, which sometimes turned violent. Marley wrote this song, Rebel Music, Three O'Clock Roadblock, 
about the time that he was stopped by army members late one night before the 72 national elections in Jamaica. In 76, Bob Marley and the Wailers released Rasta Man Vibration. The song War was on it, and it was a platform for Bob to express his devotion to his faith and his heartfelt passion for political change. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war On War, Bob sang lyrics he took from a speech by Haley Selassie. The album was a major success in the U.S. It made number eight on Billboard's Top 200 album chart, and it went gold in 77. Marley's popularity continued to rise throughout the Western world, but back at home, his clear stance on black oppression in Jamaica drew strong responses from the opposition party. On the night of December 3rd, 1976, a group of gunmen sprayed the studio where Marley and the Whalers were rehearsing. It was just two days before a planned concert in Kingston's National Heroes Park. Bob was shot in the sternum and the bicep. A bullet grazed Rita's head. Miraculously, neither one was severely injured, but their manager wasn't as lucky. Having been shot five times, it took emergency surgery to save his life. Here's where you separate the men from the boys. Most other artists would have canceled the show, but after some heavy thinking, Bob still held the concert. The day afterwards, he and Rita fled Jamaica for England. Marlon James is the acclaimed Jamaican novelist and the author of the prize-winning 2014 novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings. He uses the latter part of Bob Marley's life as substance material. In this interview, James talks about the assassination attempt and why Marley was politically dangerous.
Marley was also a unifier. And not in some abstract lovey-dovey sense, mm-hmm. but that if you grow up, like for example, a good example, in my grandmother's house, they're painting, there are pictures of, of the Michael Manley and Norman Manley. There are no pictures of family. So when you, the, the idea of getting Jamaicans to think for themselves, to actually demand more of their politicians, to actually think that politicians are only serving themselves and not them, is breaking, you're breaking almost a religion. Right. Because that's not how life is in, in, in ghetto areas. Life is you suffer, your party comes in power, maybe you'll get a, 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 a garbage cleaning job at Christmas, in two years, Uncle Ben's rice will show up at your door, and some corned beef maybe, and you go to you go and vote for this party and pushed. And the next, if a neighborhood is acting up, you get guns and kill them, and it's all in service to these party members who you only see during election time. Right. So for a man to come, and especially speaking their voice, not the party's voice. You know, never met politician do you a favor, they'll want to control you forever. Right. Sick and tired of the ism, schism, get up, stand up, stand up for your right. rights. Right. That is flipping dangerous. That is, you're, you're completely obliterating a status quo that has existed since post slavery. Right. So like he's interrupting an ecology. Is he interrupting? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really, I don't think people get how it's hard here because here Bob Marley is what every frat boy listens to in their dorm room. <laughs> right. And it's three little birds. I was in a taxi and this guy was like, man, I wish we could get back to Marley and the peace and love vibes. I'm like, dude, Marley wasn't about peace and love. Marley was about revolution. next full album was 1977's Exodus. The title track and the album were written and recorded in London. In it, you'll hear many of the Rastafarian, Marcus Garvey-type ideas we talked about earlier. The analogy between Moses and the Israelites in exile. The situation for black and indeed all Africans living in the diaspora returning to Africa. Exodus also had Waiting in Vain and Jamming. Once released, it stayed on the UK charts for more than a year. It's been called one of the best albums ever made. If you don't have this one, you should add it to your collection. It's essential listening. Marley had a health scare in 1977. He'd gone to see a doctor about a toe injury, and his physician discovered some cancerous cells there. A simple amputation should have taken care of him. The only problem? The Rastafarian religion prohibits that. Let's put this thread on hold for a few minutes.
Between 78 and 80, Marley and the Wailers wrote and released three more albums. Kaya, which used love as the album's theme and produced two hits, Satisfy My Soul and Is This Love. Bob Marley and the Wailers released Survival the next year, in 1979. Survival called for both greater unity and an end to oppression on the African continent. In 1980, the band released Uprising, which had two classics on it, Could You Be Loved and the song that opened today's episode, Redemption Song. Once again, the band hit the road to support the new release. Their international stature was never higher. They played for massive crowds in Europe before moving on to America. But the American tour was cut short. They were only able to play their first three shows, two at a Madison Square Garden and the last one at the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh before Marley became ill. The cancer that had been discovered four years before had now spread throughout his body. Now, in 1981, he traveled to Germany for unconventional treatments, which did buy him a few more months. But it was soon clear that he was out of time. In the end, Marley, who had hoped to die in Jamaica, passed away in his sleep at Cedars of Lebanon Hospital in Miami, May 11, 1981. He was only 36 years old. Before passing, Bob received the Order of Merit from the Jamaican government as well as the Medal of Peace from the UN in 1980. 30,000 people attended his memorial service, held at the National Arena in Kingston, Jamaica. The Whalers performed at the ceremony, backed as always by Rita Marley, Marcia Griffiths, and Judy Mowat. Bob left quite an enduring legacy. He was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. In December 1999, Time Magazine named the album Exodus as Album of the Century, and the BBC designated his song One Love as Song of the Millennium. More personally, his wife Rita and their children Ziggy, Stephen, Sadella, and Sharon all played together for years as Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers. In 2000, Bob received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and the next year he was honored with a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2004, Rolling Stone named him one of the greatest artists of all time. In 2006, a stretch of Church Avenue in Brooklyn between Remsen and East 98th was co-named Bob Marley Boulevard. In 2010, the Whalers album Catch a Fire was added to the Grammy Hall of Fame. In 2012, Los Angeles declared August 7th as Bob Marley Day. Still more honors are likely to follow. We're currently waiting for the release of the album Africa Unite, a collaboration between Marley's estate and a number of African musicians. The release date is scheduled for August 4th, 2023. So less than a week from this writing. Yeah. 
In this commercial world, Bob Marley is still big business. This might be another way to measure the mammoth-sized crater he left behind. There is one hell of a lot of swag out there with his picture on it. A gazillion ways for legions of Marley fans to show their tribal membership. T-shirts, hats, posters, tapestries, skateboard decks, headphones, speakers, turntables, bags, watches, pipes, lighters, ashtrays, keychains, backpacks, scented candles, rumors, soap, hand cream, lip balm, body wash, coffee, dietary supplementary drinks, and cannabis, flour and oil, that all have sort of official connection to his estate. Other items like lava lamps, iPhone cases, mouse pads, and fragrances don't. In 2016, Forbes calculated that Marley's estate brought in $21 million, making him the year's sixth highest earning dead celebrity that year. Elvis was actually number one. It's estimated that unauthorized sales of Marley music and merchandise might be as high as half a billion dollars a year. In so much things to say, the oral history of Bob Marley, the reggae historian and collector Roger Steffens estimates that at least 500 books have been written about Marley. There are books interpreting his lyrics and collecting his favorite Bible passages illustrating his connection to the Rastafarian religion and celebrating his status as a post-colonial idol. Other books reconstruct his Jamaican childhood or tell conspiracy stories about how his death was the result of a CIA plot or a bunch of coups. Bob's mother and his wife have each written memoirs about their time with him, and so have the touring musicians who were only a little while in his orbit. Bob has inspired countless works of fiction and poetry. In this month's episode, we've taken a long look at this cultural and political fabric that reggae sprang from. We've talked about how these roots were expressed in the music, and we've gotten to know a bit about Bob Marley. Of course, there are and there will continue to be many musicians who continue the sound and spirit that Marley, Tosh, and other musicians started back in the 1960s. Today, over 40 years since Bob's passing, reggae is still a vital force in many parts of the world. It gives people hope because it is so interwoven with the message of social change. We still need change since corruption, racism, oppression, and poverty are still with us. Reggae gave legitimacy to the Rastafarian religion, and you can see the faith reflected in lyrics about Jah and Babylon, with a canon of songs like Peter Tosh's Equal Rights and Justice, reggae paints a picture of how life could be for blacks living in and outside of Africa, where lives are pockmarked by poverty, limited access to resources, political exclusion, and religious oppression. As your host, though, I feel like I want to share one final point. Haley Selassie, who was crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, died. And I've heard interviews where Bob Marley and other Rastafarians have tried to answer questions about their religion in light of that fact. Most of the first generation of reggae artists that we've talked about today have all passed on. And this world hasn't gotten any better since they were here. I think actually that we're in more need of redemption now than ever. I want to read you something that you might not have heard before. 
It comes from the gospel that John wrote. And here goes. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize uh, that it was him. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Haley Selassie was not the second coming. If he had been, this world would look a lot different than it does today. But we do have a living God and he's called you by name. Maybe take a little time this week to think about what this might mean to you personally. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll be back for more. Already, there are more than 30 episodes in the series and many more are planned. If you'd like to dig deeper into any of the topics I covered today, you'll find my complete list of sources on the American Song Podcast Facebook page. When you go there, I hope you'll reach out and say hello. Let me know what you think of the series and what you'd like to see me do more of. For the American Song Podcast, I'm Joe Hines. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch up with you next time. Bye-bye.